Good morning. My name is Jason Vartanian. I am an associate pastor at Bayview OPC down in Chula Vista, our southernmost church in the denomination as far as the West Coast goes. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Always happy to visit and preach at Branch. If you will, open with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 18. We're going to do just two verses today. Proverbs 18, verse 24. And right after that, we're going to turn to Proverbs 20, verse 6. Before we read, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to give you some hints about what our text is about. Tell me, what do all these relationships have in common? Think of Han Solo and Chewbacca. Think of Maverick and Goose. Think of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Think of the four vultures in the Jungle Book. Think of Joey, Chandler, Ross, Rachel, Monica, and Phoebe. What do all these have in common? I'm sure you may have an idea. Proverbs 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Then turn with me to chapter 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man or a faithful friend who can find Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. You have given us truth. Truths that are fixed, unchangeable, that can be studied, meditated upon, clung to, returned to again and again. To strengthen us, to ground us, to lead us, direct us, guide us. To be a light before our feet in a very dark path. We ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts. That we would see clearly your truth, to see clearly you in your fullness and better understand the world that we live in. To look to Christ in his faithfulness as our friends. In that great and glorious work that he has done to rescue and redeem sinners by grace alone. And so, Lord, help us this morning to learn, to love you more, and to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The commonality between all those people was that all of them are friends. Every one of those groups is a group of friends. And so, when we think about friendship, most of us think of maybe peaks and valleys, highs and lows. We have mixed feelings when it comes to the idea and the topic of friendship. Some of our friends, we've said things like, you have changed my life. I could not have done it without you. I can always count on you. But some other relationships have taken a turn where we found ourselves thinking, I wish we never met. I have never been so hurt and so disappointed. We know that we have been made for friendship, but many of us who have been around the block for more than a decade or two know that friendship and 
Deep relationships can be very, very messy, can't they? But we're made for connection. Many of you probably saw on Apple News, uh, they had this article that was there again, and again, you probably got sick of seeing it. It was about how Harvard did this 85-year study on 700 different adults about happiness. And one of the chief common denominators for all these adults over 85 years was relationship, connection, real deep friendships are what mattered most for these people. So today we're going to do a deep dive on this topic of friendship. And I really wrestled before coming here today whether we should do a more comprehensive, excuse me, comprehensive survey of the vision of friendship from the book of Proverbs that would take us about eight or ten different topics, whether to do maybe kind of the key three or four, but I landed on us really kind of drilling deep on one of those facets. So we're going to do a deep dive on one key aspect of friendship from the book of Proverbs today. So we're going to briefly look at two things. One, the pattern of friendship in the world around us now, the world that we all actually live in, and two, the missing piece of friendship in relationship to the world that we live in that Proverbs showcases. So the pattern of friendship today and the missing piece of friendship we find in Proverbs. C.S. Lewis, in his very famous essay on the four loves, has a chapter on friendship. And he says, to the ancients, friendship was one of the highest, if not the highest, of all loves. One reason why is because it's the least natural. It's the least biological. You don't, it's not like your child where you are clinging to them because they're part of you. It's not like a marriage relationship where you love them because of other things outside of just social connection. Friendship is the most electing love of a human being. Nevertheless, moderns like us often tend to ignore friendship. We see that it is, yes, important, yes, it's necessary, but it's not always the sort of main course in the banquet of life. very famous sociologist named Robert Putnam did a big study, kind of like that Harvard study, from 1985 to 2004, I think around 70,000 people on social connection in America. And what they found was each generation seems to value intimate relationships less. Strangely, the silent generation, more. The boomers, slightly less. Generation X, slightly less. Millennials, slightly less. For instance... In the 1970s, they found that it was common for you to be in the home of your friend or in the home of a friend around 15 times a year, a little over more than once a month. By the time the 90s hit, same population, same people group, it has dropped to about half. Now it's only about eight times a year you're in the home of a friend. And Putnam says, by the time you hit the 2000s, the trajectory has only deepened. And now when we think of a sort of post-COVID very health-conscious safety world, I can imagine things are only worse. Now, some of you might be thinking, though, well, the kids today, they seem to be more connected than ever, somebody might say. The thing is, many of the relationships around for the people in their teens and the 20-somethings are very plug-and-unplug fluid relationships, aren't they? 
Some of you don't know what this thing is called, but it's, it's a meme. It's a little picture with words at the top, words at the bottom. And there's these things called meme chains and meme groups where people get together and they sort of congregate around these ideas and images that they all relate to. So, for instance, poking fun at a political candidate that they don't like. Making comments or playing at the fact that eggs are so hard to buy in 2023. Those are examples of meme chains. Examples of relationships and connections that people, for instance, Gen Z, would have. Or you think of gaming groups. Gamers that get together on the weekend to play Fortnite. Watch the same YouTube channels of how to get better at these video games. Or there's also these sort of fine-grained identity groups on Facebook, such as single Armenian men in Los Angeles who love hiking. uh, There's this thing about overlapping interests and overlapping things that we all love to do together that give the appearance of real connection. In the tech world, there's this idea of the long tail, where now today, because we are so global, so connected, things that have so much access that we can find a highly customizable experience that meets our unique needs. And we can find people out there that are so much like us in so many ways that we feel like they are our friends. The problem is, many of those relationships require zero commitment. They enable constant shopping. They can be fun, but they don't have a lot of faithfulness. They don't have a lot of depth. Many of the things I just listed, the gaming groups, the fine-grained identity groups, the meme chains, they're mirages of friendship, holograms, mannequins, statues of friendship. They're not the real thing. doesn't mean they can't be the real thing. They're just in and of themselves. They're not the real thing. People know something is missing. But why is there this sort of high connection, low commitment relationship all over? I was reading a book recently by somebody named Kim Bray trying to apply the categories of some sort of recent philosophy to the idea of friendship. He was taking the categories of this well-known philosopher named Charles Taylor and applying them to friendship today. The two categories sound a little abstract, so I'm going to explain them a bit. He says, modern people today often fall into the camp of the buffered self, where pre-modern people often fell into the camp of the porous self. Those are abstract, so let me flesh it out a little bit. Pre-modern people often were what he calls porous, meaning that significance, satisfaction, and meaning often came from outside of you and came in. You think of porous rocks like lava rock, how air can get right in there, it's bubbly. Meaning it entered from the outside into the individual. The person was embedded in and shaped by the social, cultural structures of their life. If any of you have seen the movie The Last Samurai, the protagonist gets caught by samurai, and he's an American, fought a lot of wars, and he, gets, he finds himself living in this sort of pre-modern Japanese village. And things are very different. Everybody has their own little job to do. There's the artisan, the craftsman, the fisherman, the hunter, the warrior. Everybody has their role 
for the village. They find their identity within their place in the village for the good of the community as a whole. For poorest people, the community in its needs trump you and your needs. And so rites of passage and festivals and rituals, things like this are very significant and important to you. The choices that you make are informed by the authorities above you, the traditions you belong to. Who you marry is far more dependent on the needs of your family and the suggestions of your parents than your own feelings and that old tradition. Meaning comes from the outside. And therefore, for those people, often relationships of people from the outside were very, very important. A slogan of the poorest self comes from Maya Angelou. Nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. But moving into where we're at today, uh, this person talks about the buffered self. The poorest self is the sort of pre-modern people. The buffered self is where we find ourselves today. Meaning and significance don't come from outside into us. No, they start from within. They're all on the inside. So the imagery of buffered is like there's a barrier, there's a wall. And all that's important, all that we think is useful is within. That's the primary locus of meaning. Self-definition, self-invention, self-reliance, self-direction. You think of a character like Saul Goodman you've ever seen Better Call Saul. He is a great example of the buffered self. His agenda, his morality, his code of conduct and rules asserting his identity against his brother and the rest of the world, really. Projects for people like this are always about their private aims and goals. No obligation to others. My grandfather... I just found out recently, when he was young, he had a full ride to USC. Full ride. But he chose to stay in Pittsburgh to help his parents who were poor. So he forewent going to college on a full ride to work in some sort of factory job to help support his parents. That is the, a great example of exactly what the buffered self would never do. The buffered self would say, no. I have my chance, I have my shot, this is the time. The buffered self is non-authoritarian, anti-tradition. If you've ever read anything by Leo Tolstoy, he's sort of on this hinge of time where who you marry and why is becoming a big question. Am I going to marry for feelings or am I going to marry for family? The buffered self always marries for feelings. Never for family. So meaning is from the inside, self-generated, and relationships, therefore, are necessarily secondary. If the slogan for the poorest self is nobody but nobody can make it out here alone, the slogan for the buffered self comes from the song from Talk Talk, It's my life, don't you forget. So there's these competing pressures. Wanting to be free, wanting to belong. We despair being abandoned and disposable, having a friend slowly stop responding, slowly beginning to cancel on us, giving us less and less details about their life. But we also are very fearful of commitment, allegiance, loyalty 
to our friends. We have to give them lots of time if they're going to be our friend. We have to support them when they're needy. We have to forgive them when they make mistakes. We have to be compromising and flexible when they don't fit into our life exactly as we would like. The result is, though, that many of us are involved in high-access, high-volume, low-commitment relationships that we call friendships. And the more buffered we are, the more we need and know we need to belong in the deepest recesses of who we are. So Proverbs is going to paint a vision that is very contrasting to our current situation of friendships. The book of Proverbs paints a very, very different picture. The great thinkers for a long time have thought about friendship as encompassing four things. Affinity, pleasure, utility, and commitment. Affinity is kind of what we talked about already. Uh, You and your friend kind of end up having to like some of the same things to be friends, don't you? C.S. Lewis in that same essay says, Friends aren't two people gazing at each other in the eyes in love with one another. No, friends are two people with their eyes side by side looking at the same thing. Loving, believing, affirming, valuing the same truth. They both love the Dodgers, perhaps. They both care about certain markets. They both like to surf at Zuma Beach. They both have interest in a certain cause. They both love oil painting lobster diving in PV, whatever it might be. There is sort of an analogy of yourself in some way, but they're different enough to attract you. The slogan that Lewis says for two friends discovering the friendship often is, really? You too? Affinity sparks the friendship. But there needs to be some pleasure in friendships as well. Overlap of interest is not enough. Just because you fly RC airplanes at the park on Saturdays with somebody else doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be friends. Just because you have the jersey with the number eight on the back doesn't mean you will be besties. You need to have real enjoyment and delight in one another. I had a phone call last week, and it was Easter week. It was a big ramp up for our church, a lot of stuff that was going on. And I was pretty busy. And I had scheduled a call already with a friend, and I thought to myself, I don't know if I'm going to have time for this call. And I was like, okay, I love this guy very, very much, one of my closest friends. I'm going to give it 30 minutes, we're going to go from there. Got on the phone at 8, ended up not getting off the phone until almost half past midnight. Why? Wasn't because he had some huge ordeal in his life. Wasn't because his marriage is falling apart. Nothing like that. We just simply couldn't stop talking to each other. Because the friendship and friendships in general are delicious. They're delightful. You enjoy them. There's a sort of tractor beam that brings you together. The delight may not start that strong, but there has to be some sort of pleasure in it. In addition, there's also a sort of usefulness, a utility for one another. You serve each other. You help each other. You are there when you need each other. Friends can take the spaghetti thoughts in your mind, ask you hard questions and think through and discuss things with you, and help you create structured, persuasive, and clear ideas. Friends will, like from the uh, TV show Seinfeld, 
Friends will be your date at a wedding because you don't want to be lonely. Friends will defend you and sometimes get dragged into a fight, fist fight even, to protect you. Helping, serving, and caring for each other. But also, lastly, is the fourth piece, commitment. This is the piece that Proverbs emphasizes. The commitment, the faithfulness to one another. Real friendships have to move beyond interest. They have to move beyond delight. And they have to move beyond usefulness. There has to be lasting commitment for there to be depth of a relationship. You'll notice some of the imagery. It said, many will proclaim their steadfast love, their loyalty, their faithfulness. But one who is truly faithful, who can find? It's not a dime a dozen. A true and faithful friend. Think of it your own life. Think about the friends you had who lived across the street when you were a kid. Your friends from high school. Then maybe perhaps a different set of friends in college. Then maybe the young parenting season of life friends. Then maybe the sort of midlife friends. There's often been different groups and sets of friends for different stages of life. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that at all. But a lot of our closest friends tend to come and go rather than come and stay. I did a funeral this week, or a burial, I should say, for my daughter's, excuse me, my wife's grandfather. And at the burial, you only have a few key people there, closest family. And they had a few key friends. This man died at age 91. Wonderful man. All the friends that were there, he was friends with almost since, let's think, the mid-50s. You don't find that today, do you? Closeness, consistency, faithfulness. The imagery that the other proverb says is a true friend will cling closer than a brother, clinging to you. It's actually the same word that is used in the book of Genesis. When God makes Adam and Eve, and He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. A good friend will cling close. And think about that proverb in this ancient context, right? The ancient Near East, family was everything. Family is who you always could draw upon. Family is who you went to when you needed support. Family was always there. And he says, a a real friend clings closer than even a brother. The necessary ingredient for friendship, the final capstone piece that Proverbs emphasizes, is mutual faithfulness and commitment. You think of Forrest and Bubba. They are just there for one another, thick or thin, gunshots or not, caring for each other. True biblical friendship hinges on faithfulness. And there's a reason why friendship that is faithful is hard to find. It's because things change, don't they? If there is anything that is so certain today is that things are not going to be exactly the same tomorrow. Technology will advance. 
Political regimes will be changed out. Culture will shift. Things change. And if your friendship is based on those overlapping interests, well, those are going to shift. I was reading recently that um, in a marriage book, he was giving the illustration that when you marry somebody, you're making a commitment for the rest of your life. Because, and it gets hard because you are going to change. There's going to be like five or six different versions of you if you weather the relationship to the very end. And there's going to be like five or six versions of your spouse if you weather it to the very end. The person you marry is not going to be the person that you love for the next three, four, five, six decades. They will change. Their interests will change. Pleasures will change. Speaking of marriage, two sinners in relationship for decades, you're going to get some friction, won't you? It's not all going to be delight and deliciousness. Sometimes it will be demanding. Sometimes it will be deterring. Sometimes even disgusting. Utility, usefulness, serving each other will change. The way that your friend could help you, the way that your friend was valuable to you at one phase of life may be utterly irrelevant in another season. And the same thing for you to your friend, that may shift. Even the pagans will say, any friendship that's based on utility was never a friendship in the first place, was it? If you are friends with somebody because they can help you climb the corporate ladder, they can get you into the social club, they can bring you to the place you want to be, was that ever really a friendship? No, that was just using somebody with the disguise and the mask of friendship. It was always about self. So the question is, will you be a committed and faithful friend? The buffered self, that sort of modern man that we discussed, it's expected for that person to not be that committed and that faithful, huh? Because they say, it's about me. I get to decide. I get to choose. I get to exit and enter what I would like to. But for the Christian, that's not really the model of relationship, is it? Two questions of application are this. As you're thinking through this, Maybe you're feeling a little self-righteous because you're such a faithful friend. Maybe you're feeling a little condemned because you're not a faithful friend like me. But here's something to think about. If you've had a previous friendship that has failed, or a couple key friendships that have died, I want you to consider why. Just stop and really think. Do an autopsy. Dissect the relationship. Why did it fail? And in particular, what was your part in its failure? Many things change, yes, but some things don't change too. And if you played a part in the destruction of that relationship in the past, if that has not changed in who you are today, that may just maybe contribute to the destruction or at least the harm and damage of another friendship in the days to come. If you are a great friend, I'm thankful for you. But if you're sometimes a mediocre friend or a terrible friend like some of us, we need a lot of help, don't we? We might be a little more buffered 
even as Christians, than we think. Now, I want to be careful. One caveat is this. I'm not saying that every friendship you have needs to be in perpetual, everlasting endurance. You can't be equally close to every friend you've ever had for the rest of your life, can you? There's just natural seasons where sometimes things come and they go. Sometimes there is a necessary time to let a friendship go dormant. Sometimes there's a time where a friendship needs to be cut off because of sin and unrepentance. But I think we more wrestle with undercommitment and underfaithfulness than overcommitment. Thankfully, you and I, friends, if we are Christians, we worship a God who is the designer, the maker of friendship. God himself authored friendship. God himself calls us his friends. And think about that idea of mutual commitment and how much we fail in our friendship with God. He has given us everything. And we have given him back almost nothing. In fact, we often give him back rejection and rebellion and a lack of love and loyalty. And nevertheless, when we know him and are found in him and we trust him, he calls us friends and he sees us as righteous. He gives himself sacrificially regardless. We think in particular God the Son incarnate. Jesus Christ is the greatest ever model of a friend. He is the perfect friend that you and I, this side of the second coming, cannot be. Cleaves closer than a brother to his disciples. Loves them tremendously while speaks in tenderness and yet speaks truth. Forgiving and yet honest and caring. Always loving, always candid. Helping them with his counsel. Loving them by his actions. Washing their dirty feet when he is the king of kings. Careful, he knows their frame. Sympathizes with them in joy, with them in sorrow. And above all, the gospel itself is an act in one way of friendship. Jesus, for his friends, lays down his life. The very people that he has made rejected him. The very people he spends three years serving, teaching, sleeping beside, eating with constantly, abandon him. Remember that. What happens when he gets arrested? They're like, whoa, party's over. This whole Messiah taking over thing and and, and Rome getting booted out, that's not happening. And so where am I going? I'm going that way, Jesus, and the arrest is going this way. He knows all that's going to happen to these people who betray him. And yet he suffers for them, pays the penalty for them, satisfies the wrath of God for their failure for them. In his great and perfect sacrifice, He is achieving the great act of friendship, laying down his life for those who have failed him. And then Christ, when he dies for our sins, rises by the Spirit as we just celebrated last Easter, ascends into heaven, and then he sends his Spirit. 
And it's that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Christ, the perfect friend, who works in all of us as we become more like Him, as we know Him, as we serve Him to make us greater friends. To conform us into the image of that perfect friend, Jesus Himself. And He brings us into a community of friends. I mean, look around you. Who are these people? Yes, we're a family. And we're also friends. We all share the greatest overlapping interest. What are we all committed to as the chief end of man? Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Amen. That unites all of us. All of us united in Christ. One new humanity. One baptism. One spirit. One people of God. That's us. And yet we are Not just one, but many, and many friends. And some of you, you've, for much of your life, have been looking for the great, great friend who will be faithful, who will know you, who you can be transparent with, who will love you, who will care for you, who will be patient, who will listen, the one who will not abandon you. But the thing is, you might still be looking and looking and looking. Because that friend in its perfection is Christ Himself. He is the friend who knows you in all of who you are and loves you in all of who you are, forgiving you, laying down His life to save you. One day, though, I want to encourage you, you're not just going to commune with this great friend who is your God and who is your Savior in this world, while he sits on the throne in that world, the communion will one day be face to face with that great friend. When he returns to bring you home, or when he calls you home before he returns, you will see him face to face, and you will have that friendship and that relationship that you have always deeply longed for, and yet have never found exactly. You have had copies, you had things that were close, and friends that you were so thankful for, but you know the true and greatest friend you are yet to have face to face, but you will. And here's the thing, even more than that, all of us together one day will be like that true and faithful friend, Christ himself, in that place on that day after he has come. You will one day be that faithful. You will one day be that loving. And it will be all of us together. One day. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't call Jesus Lord, maybe you totally doubt, maybe you completely reject, maybe you're generally interested, I want to remind you, all you have in this life, if there is no God, for that connection is human relationships. But as you can see, those relationships will fail. Parents die or grow sour. Children grow up and will distance themselves. Friends, as we have talked about, will come and they will go. And friend, finding value in human connection will, in the end, not satisfy. It will be more hollow than you ever imagined the deeper that you go. But there is a great friend, there is a God who says, Come, I have made the way. 
I know you in all of your fullness, and I have still died for you. A God who offers you rescue and forgiveness of sins, not because you are great, not because you are so lovable, but because He simply loves you. And He says, trust me, come to me, and I will be the friend that you have never had. God says, my friendship will never cease. Stop being stubborn and come. So friends, friendship is messy. It's a need that we know we have, and yet it still is a threat in our eyes because of what it demands and how often we've been hurt. Our place, our context, our world, yes, it undervalues friendship. It does not like commitment. It does not love faithfulness. But if you know Jesus, you have the great friend. And if you trust and love and serve Jesus, you are becoming more and more like the great friend. And the result will be, you will be more and more what Proverbs is talking about. More and more like the Savior Himself. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us friends. We are so thankful that we don't have to earn forgiveness. We don't have to earn righteousness. We don't have to earn love from you. You have come, you have died, you have paid the price for our sins. Because of your love for sinners. Help us, Lord, to trust. Help us to obey. Help us, in light of that great gospel good news, to be more faithful friends. We need you, Holy Spirit. We need you, Jesus. Teach us your ways, we pray. Amen.